Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center in Europe-Russia Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic International Studies. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Russian Roulette. We have a great episode today that is geared toward discussing what comes next in Russia in 2023. We're at the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, of Russia's decision to invade Ukraine. And we want to talk today about what 2023 might hold for Vladimir Putin and for the Kremlin and for Russia. Joining me on this episode today is, of course, Maria Snegovaya. Hi, Maria. Hi, Max. Good to be here. And also Michael Kimmage. Michael is a senior associate non-resident fellow here at CSIS. Additionally, he is the chair of the history department at Catholic University. And Michael is a voice that everyone should get used to hearing because as a non-resident, he's going to be appearing quite a lot on this podcast. Michael, great to have you here. Thanks for having me, Max and Maria. Great. And I think one of the things we want to sort of talk about is that each of us have pieces that have just come out or are about to come out uh, and that kind of each hit at where things are headed in Russia in 2023 or beyond and how Russia is being impacted by the war. And Maria, maybe I can start with you to talk about what you have in store. You have a, a, a report coming out on how sanctions have in, impacted Russia. And then look at the examples of South Africa and Iran. Maybe you could, could sort of talk about that, that report a bit and, and what is its main findings. Yeah, so we're trying to sum up what have been the obvious impact of the sanctions a year in, and also uh, what does it tell us about the future, especially about the political angle of it, right? So a lot of people are talking about the economic dimension, but there's also everything that has to do with the political effects, and that's these are the ones that we really care about. So when it comes to specific effects of the sanctions, there's not exactly maybe groundbreaking findings. The individual ones, the export controls and the macroeconomic sanctions, that's how we divide them. The individual ones are the ones against the Kremlin elites and related actors. And here, unfortunately, we do not see a lot of effects, if we are being honest. As a matter of fact, there's attempted effects to produce some splits within the Kremlin elites, or maybe to force the elite members to speak up against the situation in Ukraine in this unprecedented war. These goals do not seem to have been achieved. Uh, in particular, we effectively have only seen two members of the Kremlin elites cautiously trying to dissociate themselves from the Kremlin, specifically Anatoly Chubais, who resigned from his position of Russian climate envoy and fled uh, Russia, and also Alexei Kudrin, who cautiously stepped down from his position of the head of the country's audit chamber to lead the business uh, Russian tech giant Yandex. In both instances, however, these individuals already were known in Russia as so-called system liberals, so the people who take cautiously pro-Western views. And so the fact that they wanted to sort of dissociate themselves a little bit from the system is not exactly groundbreaking. In most other instances, we've seen early on with the start of the war, some of the Russian tycoons starting speaking up, 
But beyond that, and the fact that they're now spending their vacation in Turkey, United Arab Emirates and Dubai, instead of the European Union and the United States, unfortunately, the results were not as pronounced. And I think we should be clear about the nature of the Russian system in which Russian officials represent, the Russian elite members are not independent actors, but rather interest groups that really survive on the distribution of the Kremlin resources. And therefore, little is probably achievable when it comes to trying to you know, empower their individual agency. So basically, so basically that the oligarchs, we have not sort of broken away from the Kremlin, the, the idea that we would be sanctioning Russia's elite and ergo that would create cracks. We haven't really seen that really emerge in the last year. The cracks are not there. And uh, I would say we're not likely to see that changing in the future also because the, the strongest effects of the sanction actually in this case, they tend to be at the beginning. Uh, subsequently, people adjust, they kind of turn around their lives and effectively deal with the situation, uh, deal with the new reality to the best of their capacity, explain the new reality to themselves. And unfortunately, this is just the reality. Having said that, the individual sanctions obviously should be uh, kept in place. Uh, if anything, they would love the West to get rid of this uh, soft power influence when these individuals travel to the West and try to, for example, purchase some services of them uh, by paying the Western institutions, corrupting them, etc. And perhaps we also should consider going after their families that often continue residing in the West. This is one of the possible areas where it may be hurtful. Now, we also looked at the export controls sanctions. This is the area of limited success of the U.S., but also Western, Western Alliance more broadly. We've seen that many of the Western produced components have not been achievable for Russia early on into this war, and several in the specific industries and crucial categories, such as AI, optics, certain chemicals, advanced materials, and semiconductors, Russia really did experience shortages. Uh, as a result, production in multiple areas, such as machine building industry or pharmaceutical industry, has been in decline. Aviation, Russia's aviation has suffered in particular, Cars, when it comes to the cars, to give you some numbers, Russia is right now down to the level of production under the first few years of Leonid Brezhnev's rule. This is how far back into the 20th century we went. And yes, the effects are there. Uh, however, Russia is also unfortunately learning to circumvent those sanctions. And for example, when it comes to semiconductors, one area where uh, the media largely viewed certain successes have been achieved early on. Right now, we get an increasing number of reports that Russia has found routes to import those necessary elements and components for third countries, of course. We're talking China, Turkey, post-Soviet countries, uh, Belarus in particular, but among, uh, along with Belarus also other countries of Central Asia, et cetera, et cetera. So this unfortunately becomes the sort of cat-mouse game where essentially the West sort of uh, finds potential loopholes, fills in, Russia finds the way around them, and this is likely to continue. The most important conclusion, if we also look at our analysis in defense industry, is that even if uh, Russia will not be able to produce high-tech, sophisticated technology, that is necessary to say uh, make its weapons smarter it still will have lots of equipment to create a lot of chaos 
uh, in Ukraine, unfortunately. And in some ways, you really, really, you know, what does it matter for Russia if its uh, missile flies directly to the target or it misses the target and maybe instead attacks some residential building and many people die, right? Unfortunately for Putin and the Kremlin, this is not necessarily a suboptimal outcome in this war. So unfortunately, export controls have limitations and it's important to recognize them. Secondary sanctions will play a decisive role uh, in this regard. Last but not the least, of course, the macroeconomic sanctions are the ones that we believe are the most important ones. And we look at uh, financial sanctions, it's largely recognized that those have not delivered as strongly as expected, largely because throughout last year, Russia has experienced unprecedented uh, oil and gas revenues that helped uh, essentially curdle the negative effects of such sanctions as freezing uh, foreign currency reserves, uh, for example. But to essentially make the long story short, with the energy sanctions now in place since December 2022, we've seen that Russia started experiencing some uh, problems. This is where, in my opinion, the Achilles heel of the Kremlin truly is. And as long as the West is able to sustain this effort, which, uh, just a reminder, includes the EU embargo on Russia's oil and the oil price cap, and the recently introduced um, EU embargo also on Russia's oil products. Russia will not probably be able to fully substitute for those losses by rerouting its exports of energy to Asia, uh, mostly because it takes much longer, first of all, for oil to get there. And second, because uh, Asian countries most just do not need oil and oil products in particular to such an extent that Europe uh, needed it. So that, that's that's a big blow. But again, a lot will depend on Russia's ability to circumvent those sanctions. Again, the report starts multiplying that the true oil price of the Russian oil, for example, is not as low as one would have hoped based on the oil price cap. Other reports essentially show Russia using multiple shade strategies and effectively learning from Iran to again continue selling oil to the markets where it effectively uh, is prohibited from selling its oil, etc., etc. So this becomes again this continuous work mall game where the West should continuously monitor the situation to sustain uh, the sanctions design. But having said all of that, it's important to keep in mind that whilst the EU embargo was imposed in uh, December, the ruble for the first like for the first time in a very long time has actually weakened quite uh, dramatically and in january this year as a combined effect of this uh, factors but also of course other factors played a role russia's budget experienced the largest deficit in january since the crisis year of 1998 which if anything tells us something right it's things are not as great for the kremlin anymore we also know that the kremlin urgently re-estimating the levels of tax levied from russia's energy producing companies in order to increase budget revenues and you know in combination with everything else going on things do not look as bright for the kremlin this year as they looked last year so hopefully this time sanctions will actually deliver a more pronounced effect so I think I think just to to sum up, I know it's a really great overview of the paper, and encourage everyone to to check it out. It's sort of been a mixed bag. Sanctions have had an effect, but it hasn't been as disastrous as perhaps expected last February. However, Russia's really having to to sort of struggle to. 
to keep on going. And, and Michael, I want to bring you in. You have a, a piece in Foreign Affairs called Wartime Putinism. And you have a line that it says, I think it's quite apt, wartime Putinism is an experiment in deferring problems. And I think a lot of what Maria is pointing to will sort of force the Kremlin to try to avoid many of the problems that will keep emerging within its economy and to try to sort of essentially kick the can down the road, at least economically. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the the general thesis of that piece and, and how you see things sort of playing out in, in Russia in, in 2023. Sure. You know, the piece tries to answer, I should mention that it, there's a co-author to the piece, Maria Littman, who certainly contributed a lot to it. It tries to answer the question of what's new about Putinism because of the war, because I think we're all familiar, uh, in a sense, with the Putinism that was there before the war. And one answer to the question is that Putinism prior to 2022 ran to a great degree on the indifference uh, of the Russian population. So the contract, the kind of social contract was there, was not necessarily that you had to sign on to the arguments of the Kremlin uh, or even do the Kremlin's work. Uh, the social contract was that you shouldn't get in the way of the Kremlin's work. And that did give people a kind of latitude to be apolitical. It didn't give them the latitude to be political, but gave them the latitude to be apolitical. And that's changed with the wars, or, or in particular with the mobilization of September, although it's still you know, sort of a halfway project on, on, on Putin's part. It's not as if he's mobilized Russian society in the way the German society was mobilized in the late 1930s. And it's still probably the case that you know, the sort of ideological commitments of the Kremlin are shared by a minority of the Russian population. But through repression, which has become much more extreme during the war, and through what we established, Maria Littman and I, as a kind of anti-anti-war sentiment that's there in Russia. In other words, maybe people didn't want the war, maybe they have questions about how Putin is prosecuting it. But as of now, there's a sort of large number of people who don't want to lose the war, that Putin can use that as a sort of sufficient foundation to kind of keep the war going politically. So he hasn't fully mobilized Russian society, but through repression and through the war, he's sort of half mobilized Russian society. And so far, although the future is certainly uh, unpredictable, that's kind of worked for him or, or has effectively worked for Putin. But to go back to your question, sort of the last part of my answer to it, I think in a larger sense, both Maria Lippin and I see this as a dead end. Uh, and so there are multiple ways in which the war is the opposite of statesmanship for Putin. Statesmanship is, you know, some combination of domestic politics and foreign policy that contributes to a country's, you know, sort of health, growth, power, influence, etc. And, you know, we could certainly speak about the ways in which the military part of the war hasn't gone well for Russia and has in some ways reduced its influence in the South Caucasus, Central Asia, and elsewhere. But it just seems like in so many ways, wartime Putinism is in and of itself a dead end. It's driving younger, more talented people out of the country. It's going to make it much harder for the country to sort of integrate in the future and to absorb technological change. And, you know, these kinds of economic patterns can, I think, be very slow. So it's not as if this will yield revolution in the next six months or 12 months, uh, but the steady effects of it will be palpable. And one has to wonder when those effects from these sort of reversals of intelligent political economy, when those effects meet the effects of the war, which is to say the high casualties and uh, the sacrifices that are being asked of Russians during the war, when those two things will meet, then wartime Putinism will start to wobble. I wouldn't make any kind of time-specific prediction there, but that's where the vulnerability is. And I think that does intersect with the with the analysis that Maria just outlined a moment ago. No, I think it's a, a great point. And I think part of what we saw in the beginning phases of, of the war 
was that Putin didn't mobilize the population, that this was a special military operation. You could be arrested if you called it a war. And so that the shift to this being a wartime effort, I mean, it seemed to really happen in the fall with the sort of fascistic or the, the at least pronounced annexation of four Ukrainian oblasts and the mobilization. And I guess the, the question maybe for Maria is whether the Russian public that had sort of been apathetic and told to stay out of politics is now both really get, being forced to be involved in, in politics in the sense that they're being mobilized uh, to go to war, at least Russian men and therefore their families are, are really having to, to cope with having to be sent into battle. And it doesn't really strike me. There's been a clear narrative that the, that the Kremlin has really pushed to kind of galvanize the population but we seem to have seen public opinion polling, for what it's worth, still hold in support of the Kremlin. But do you think this is durable support, you know, especially if the war doesn't go well? So, yeah, thank you, Max. And we definitely align uh, here with uh, Michael in that it's really uh, it comes it, it feels very unrealistic that the Russian public will continue just to silently acquiesce with everything that's going on, even if so far it's true, the remarkable degree of conformity of the Russian population with these current circumstances has been the case throughout all this last year. The only time, indeed, when we've seen uh, the public approval for the Kremlin and its actions collapse was indeed after the mobilization has been announced, but even then it didn't last. It's as if people wanted, you know, things to go back to normal and try to create this, uh, desperately try to maintain this um, illusion of normalcy, despite everything else. Even if you look at current polls, you'll see that people are actually quite optimistic about the future. You know, they think the economy will rebound. They think the West, the relations with the West eventually will approve. And in general, things are great. Yes, there's just a little nuisance there somewhere in Ukraine, but so well, so what? Yeah, it does not concern me personally. Which is ironically because the very fact that Russian society kept maintained this attitude throughout all these years, right? This is not my business. This does not concern me personally. Is effectively what got it into this current catastrophe in the first place. But to answer your question, how this all is going to unravel, we actually looked at comparative examples of South Africa and Iran, exactly with the purpose of trying to understand what were political outcomes, the effects of sanctions in the long term. And uh, yes, one can argue, of course, that Iran and South Africa are not very comparable to Russia in multiple dimensions, but also on many levels they are, especially Iran, of course, right? With this uh, type of leadership, personalized political system, and some sort of quasi-ideological attempt to maintain uh, the status quo. We see that over some time, and actually quite fast, in both instances, in Iran and South Africa, after their export revenues suffered a major blow, there was a very comparable dynamic unraveling. First of all, this, both states uh, largely did not succeed with the input substitution. There was some, uh, but it wasn't very effective, putting an additional strain on the economy. The economy, meanwhile, uh, continued becoming more ineffective and inefficient over time, largely because uh, in, like in these cases, rulers tend to redistribute their, in the sectors of economy to their cronies, uh, such as was the case in Iran. And that in itself, sort of the dy internal dynamic of this regime exacerbates uh, the effect of sanctions, right? It becomes more and more inefficient over time. 
As a result, the inflation that's growing, we actually see that in Russia already, even if the authorities are desperate to hide these numbers, people report a pronounced increase in the essentially cost of life. Just to give you some uh, data, especially uh, an average uh, retirement pay payment, um, like the Russian uh, pensioners get, is approximately the amount of uh, maintaining a dog for a month in Russia. So that's how much uh, you need, you know, if you want to feed your dog. Hmm. Yeah. But essentially, sanctions also, con contrary to common assumptions, did not create rally around the flag uh, in both instances. And I also did not necessarily see the same effects um, in Russia either. The rally around the, fl the flag effect, so this effect of uniting around the leader, is created by the, uh, the war itself. But the sanctions actually do not work to reinforce that effect, so I think we shouldn't be worried about that over the long run. This combined effect actually contributes to growing social discontent. And actually, as I mentioned, in both South Africa and Iran, the effect will vary quick. In Russia, given the differences and probably also remarkable inertia of the society and the economy, these effects are going to take a while. If you think of Afghanistan, it took pretty much 10 years. I think now it will be shorter, but not obviously not in a month, not, not in two months. Yeah, I would give it some time, but eventually some sort of social discontent and possibly even outbreak of protests is bound to follow just because people experience a remarkable avoid, like a deterioration of their life. Uh, last but not the least, uh, in both instances, uh, regimes try to curdle the social discontent by both increasing the repression apparatus and social spending, but that put additional strain on the budget, right, with which was already problematic for both regimes and eventually, if anything, exacerbated this dynamic. So actually, with a degree of confidence, I think we, we should expect similar dynamic unraveling in Russia over some time. And I think this echoes Michael Michael's point, um, especially if uh, energy sanctions continue to deliver. Of course, yeah. a lot depends on the West. So, I mean, I think you're both sort of pointing to the potential for sort of a vicious spiral where economic degradation, battlefields, losses lead to an apathetic public becoming increasingly annoyed about how things are going and then wanting change and reform. I guess the question, though, is where does this come from, given that the Kremlin has also become more autocratic, has become much more repressive? And then a number of the people that would potentially, uh, younger people that may take to the streets have actually just left Russia to out of fear of mobilization. So, Michael, if you look at the prospects of the regime, and there's another school of thought that says, actually, the wagons are just circling around, and and uh, Putin's hold on power has be, has sort of consolidated in some respects, and, and everyone's afraid, and everyone's in line. What is your take on the potential stability of the of the Kremlin right now? So twofold, and, and your question is a very astute one, Max, in terms of the article we were trying to write. What we were attempting to counter was the thesis statement that the regime is fragmenting, which many excellent experts have put forward as a thesis, and they may, may well be right. You know, these are difficult questions to adjudicate given the absence of you know really good internal evidence. But it wasn't our impression and what we were concerned with in the pieces that this might be wishful thinking, that we'll create a narrative of regime fragmentation because that's what we want to believe when it may not be the case. So we kind of went, you know, perhaps a little bit too far in some ways in the other direction, but that's what we attempted to do and to look at the pillars of support that Putin does have. Many of them compelled through force, but a few of them there 
sincerely, as it were, and that's what we meant by this anti-anti-war sentiment, which is for the time being real. And that's not a Russian dynamic. That's the dynamic of every country that's early on in a war. You know, people don't want to lose it. It's, it's entirely understandable, and it's not even difficult to explain. And so Putin has, in a sense, capably exploited all of that to do perhaps what he's intended to do all along as Russia's president, which is to erect something of a the dictatorship around himself, not just autocratic rule, but really dictatorial rule. And, you know, as of today, and, and probably for the short term, this structure seems to be seems to be sustainable. But just to go back to the, the, the previous previous question that you asked me, Max, and to flesh out one point, that's also there in, in, in the essay, Wartime Putinism, you know, what Putin had in the first eight years of his presidency, there's a lot to dislike about Putin in those eight years. There's a contempt for democracy. There's certainly militarism in those years. I mean, the Second Chechen War is not less brutal than the war in Ukraine, although the scale of it is perhaps somewhat different, the persecution of journalists, etc. I mean, you can sort of go on and on and find all of the ingredients for wartime Putinism there in the first eight years. But what Putin did have in those eight years, that was sort of his selling point as a politician, was something of a positive vision for the country. He wants to stabilize the country, allegedly, after the chaos of the 1990s. He wants to build up a Russian middle class. He wants to pump money into St. Petersburg and Moscow. And, you know, those weren't completely honest promises, but they weren't completely empty promises either. And I think that there was also a message, especially in the first maybe two, three years of Putin's presidency, that he wanted to integrate Russia into Europe and sort of make Russia a modern European country. And I think that that was a vision of Russia that many Russians thought was Correct. Good old days. <laughs> and, and, and desirable and, you know, sort of in order. And even if Putin were to be somewhat authoritarian in the pursuit of those ends, maybe that was that was to a degree encouraged. What's striking now, and I think where the ultimate vulnerability of the regime does lie, is that the vision is really very empty. I mean, if you take a candid view of the war in Ukraine, apart from the propaganda that Putin spins around it, what good is it going to bring to Russia? Uh, it's an enormous expenditure of human life and resources, not to mention the imposition of all of this suffering on the people of Ukraine for nothing. I mean, there's no strategic benefit, there's no political benefit to the country. And then in all of these ways, we've already sort of mentioned most of them, the country is starting to go backwards. So what's the promise? You know, if you're an 18-year-old Russian now, and you look at Putin seriously and carefully, what does he promise you in terms of who you'll be when you're age 30 or 40? I mean, is it the promise of empire? Is that really enough? Uh, is that going to work? It's a very, very empty, it's not only a dead end, but it's sort of internally empty. And that hollowness is going to matter for Putin uh, over time, because no war gets more popular over time. Every war gets more unpopular over time. And if it's wedded to this empty political structure that he's now constructed, uh, it bodes very ill for him in the future, though probably not in the, you know, in the sort of short to medium term future. But that's, that's, I think, where the vulnerability is starting to gather force for Putin. Right. It's sort of the the pursuit of empire is actually now just become the pursuit of four Ukrainian oblasts. And that is it, it, it seems a, a little pointless. I might may use. I, yeah, go ahead. Just jumping, sorry about Max. Yeah, I kind of agree and disagree on to your point, uh, Michael, is that Rachel is funny how propaganda has been shifting narratives as to what the hell we're doing in Ukraine, you know, from denazifying, then demilitarization, then they got a little bit confused, but maybe, maybe we're fighting against NATO. At some point, there was desatinization also proposed by some of the commentators, but in fact, eventually Putin, when he was speaking after the annexation of the four regions in Ukraine, which even that they couldn't 
hold on to, right? Uh, Putin said, okay, well, 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 at least Russia has expanded, right? Azov Sea is now the internal sea, guess, guess why? So they, they really kind of out, they, they really ran out of different excuses. Not that the society is quite aware of that, right? I, I kind of see that based on the comments uh, in the social media that Russians provide. They don't necessarily keep track uh, of uh, how often the Kremlin narratives change. And that is a little bit of concerning, of course, uh, even if uh, like you would think they should know because they watch Russia's official TV channels with those these different narratives on a daily basis. But uh, where I wanted to disagree a little bit is to with your point that there's actually there's no kind of underlying idea in this war. And to some extent, it's true, as I said, on the surface. But deep enough, if you look at Putin's 20 years of Putin's rule, especially like after that moment of pro-Western orientation of Russia, which ended uh, fairly quickly, unfortunately, you'll notice, and that's what uh, Levada Center, especially Levgutkov, always point out, that the general narrative of Russia being in permanent contestation and opposition to the West, that Russia was always in, surrounded by enemies and the threat would always come from the West, starting with like Viet Napoleon or Hitler, and they also have been rewriting history to suggest that Russia was fighting in Second World War and winning alone. They conveniently forget even that Russia had actual allies in that war. It has actually been consistent, as was consistent, the narrative that, yes, we won the Second World War. And guess what? We can do it again. Like I've seen it in Russia with my own eyes the summer of 2021, uh, where essentially all the billboards with national historical figures like Alexander Nevsky and this alliance, we can do it again. And I remember that was back at the time, if I did not suspect the war was coming, but it was actually quite concerning to see that pretty much quite often, you know, uh, being obviously brainwashing the society with a certain purpose, right? So this idea that, yes, we're the great country always has been always fighting against the hostile West. The West is always up to something and wants to destroy us. And we can do it again. We won once against the Nazi and we can do it again. This idea has been there for a while, the last 15 years at the very least. And so in some ways, the society has been prepared to this war. So I would not necessarily agree that the war just comes out of nowhere. There was a long methodological, long consistent preparation. Michael? No, I think that that's a hundred percent persuasive. Uh, and in general, I think what's very difficult to understand from a non-Russian point of view is the way in which offense and defense sort of mingle in Russian security culture and Russian foreign policy. And to the degree that Putin can convince Russians, as he's been trying to do, that this is a defensive war, uh, I think he will have uh, ideological backing for the war. And you know, sorry, uh, jump in. In the Russian uh, historical narrative, Russia has never fought any offensive wars. Russia always defends itself while simultaneously, conveniently expanding in this process. It just happens this way. And it, and it, it you know, that you can see the attempt at the moment. And and I guess the open question is, when you return to the very beginning of the war, whether Putin opens certain again vulnerabilities for himself in the in the framing of it. In that, and here the first two weeks of the war and the first two weeks before the war might be truly significant if he was planning a kind of false flag operation. And if that was thwarted, this may be sort of significant in this regard. The fact that there isn't a kind of invasion from without 
at least in objective terms, uh, you have to wonder if that doesn't come back to haunt him a little bit like, although the parallel is a inadequate one, a little bit like Lyndon Johnson with the Gulf of Tonkin resolution where he rushed the country into the war and come, came up with a pretty inadequate explanation for what the US was doing in Vietnam. It didn't hurt his prospects in 1965, but as the war started to go badly, people revisited that and it really did damage Johnson. But uh, it's it's entirely an open question. And I think Maria, for the time being, you're, you're entirely right that the, the argument that this is a defensive war to protect Russia from an aggressive West provides uh, a firm ideological foundation for the war. Yeah, no, I think I think that's totally right. I think, well, I want to sort of maybe switch gears to to talk about a piece that I put out earlier this year that tried to be somewhat, I think, poke the bear in a number of ways, not just the not just Russia, but a number of different viewpoints. The piece was what could come next, assessing the Putin regime's stability and Western policy options. And the central argument that I made is that I think where, and I and this sort of bridges off of what we've already talked about, but I think when you look at a sort of assess the regime stability, you can see a lot of factors that point to things becoming increasingly less stable for the Kremlin, whereby you have uh, an economy that's getting worse, sanctions are making everything crappier, the country doesn't quite know what the war is about. But the big... X factor will be the battlefield, will be what happens in Ukraine. And it struck me that should Western strategy succeed, in which I hope it does, which is arming Ukraine so that Ukraine can take back more territory, that that in and of itself, that if Ukraine is successful on the battlefield, that will have, I think, real implications for the stability of, of the Putin regime. And I think in really two ways. One, it's simply that you're going to be sending a lot of uh, Russian men home in, in body bags that will add to the disaffection as well as to the economic burden that has been placed on families and on the Kremlin to support those families. But then also it will pop the, the, the bubble or the balloon of Putin's legitimacy, of the, the sense that Putin is this sort of all-knowing strategic leader that we can sort of trust. And here we are, here Russia is having lost a war or having ceded territory, Crimea now being potentially under threat. I don't even think Ukraine has to necessarily take it militarily, but at least put it under real threat. That it strikes me that the stability of the regime then becomes in doubt. And I think the scenario that I think becomes most likely is not that Putin is replaced by a hardliner. I think that that is oftentimes put out there as sort of, well, if Putin leaves, then he's inevitably going to be replaced by a hardliner. But the whole war has centered around him. It's his decision-making. It's his war. It is very much Putin's war. And you've seen, as Maria mentioned, elites circle the wagons around Putin. They're going to fight tooth and nail, I think, to maintain his rule, maintain the, the regime. But should it collapse, it will collapse. And to me, the alternative isn't necessarily... I mean, there's many different alternatives. But one avenue of potential alternatives, and I think we in the West need to think about is what does a post-Putin future look like? And what the piece then throws out is that we actually maybe should start at least rhetorically throwing out the idea that Russia could come back into, into the West, into Europe. It could be reintegrated in a post-Putin future in which it makes peace in Ukraine. It makes some reparations for what it did. Obviously, it, it, it's never going to be able to fully meet what Ukrainians would demand. And I think that's that's going to be a constant challenge. But we have seen in post-World War II European history the integration of a country like Germany 
And yes, that was through the military occupation and defeat. But it also strikes me that there is a clear, better path for Russia. And that would be trying to make amends with the West, trying to get sanctions alleviated. But it's not the 1990s. You're not transitioning from a Soviet economy to a capitalist economy. You're transitioning from a capitalist economy that was very corrupt uh, to one that if you remove sanctions and enable to sell your products on the on the world market would be quite attractive. And so I think there would be a clear opportunity for an alternative leader to say, we can end this war and things will be better. And that, I think, would be reciprocated by the West. And it might make sense to float that idea now. Anyway, try to be provocative. And Michael, I want you to come in here. Right. And I want to ask a, a question. I think that the diplomatic imagination needs to have optimism. And if you would go back to the year 1942, which is among the darkest in in human history, if people didn't have the optimism, the sort of the Robert Schumanns and Conrad Adenauers, uh, and also George Marshalls and others, if these people didn't have a vision for the post-war order that was in some respects better than the war itself, you know, we would be much worse off than we are now. They did have that kind of optimism to believe in a better post-war order, and that was crucial when that post-war moment came. So I, I couldn't support more your you sort of creative framing of the problem and the the need to ask this question, uh, not only if things are going to go downhill, you know, sort of permanently, but ask the question, what if we have an opportunity that comes about because of the war and how could we capitalize on it? But I did want to ask about two points that sort of often come up when discussions are, are, are had about a negotiated settlement. And so the first is war crimes tribunals and the second is 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 reparations. And it's sort of unclear to me if Russia would remove all of its soldiers, including from Crimea, I'm not sure if these would be stumbling blocks or sort of preconditions. They might be for Ukraine. I'm not sure for the U.S. and uh, for all of Europe how that's this is seen. But at the moment, I mean, I think these two points are often put forward. So do you think that's something a kind of post-Putin government in Russia could accommodate or would that have to be worked out? I think it's a, a huge question. But I think the the basic reality is that we're not going to occupy Russia. So we could occupy Germany and then force Nuremberg war crime trials on that country. I think what you saw in in post-apartheid South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you know, that was an internal issue that was about sort of its own internal dilemmas. But the basic reality is you're not going to have war crimes trials unless there's a Russian government that wants to participate in them because of the fact that we're not occupying. So in order to have any sort of accountability will require in the longer term Russian willingness to participate. I would put it maybe a little bit, and I, I think it's going to be a huge vexing problem. And and Ukrainians are right to want to have justice and want to have reparations. I do think that from just, and so this is where a Ukrainian demand for justice, where may perhaps a Western diplomatic angle may at times come into conflict. But I think, look, I think part of what we would be trying to do by sort of Beginning to hint at a post-Putin Russia having a path back is to destabilize the Kremlin, is to destabilize Putin, is to tell those oligarchs and other power brokers that, you know, there could be a better path that doesn't have to mean crushing reparations for Russia, endless sanctions, the endless isolation, no matter what. And that if you don't offer any sort of carrot, you essentially harden the support inside of Russia for Putin because there's no alternative. And... And this is a very tricky messaging task, but I think merely floating, you know, that if Putin were to go, the West would be open to re-engaging Russia. And frankly, I think that's just actually factually true that if if Putin were to suddenly die tomorrow, which is, you know, no one can bank on happening. 
I think you would see a lot of countries, including the United States, rush to potentially re-engage uh, whatever alternative to see if there could be a more normalized route there. And so I think that is something to, to, to consider. Actually, I think Ronald, Ronald Reagan kind of did exactly what you're describing in the end phase of the Cold War. And it, it, not that these are analogous situations, but it certainly paid dividends for Reagan. To, he did quite a lot of outreach sort of beyond the government to the peoples of the Soviet Union, and it was useful. Yeah, I, I mean, the tear down this wall speech is seen as this like big defiant, you know, Gorbachev, I am strong, but actually it was like, we can be okay. We can coexist. It wasn't sort of tear down this wall and everything will collapse. And I think we sometimes forget that in the post-1989 analysis sees it, uh, things a little bit differently. But Maria, maybe bring you here uh, in at the end as the, our final few minutes. Well, I uh, agree with the premise. And I actually think that, first of all, things are unlikely to change at all under Putin. And really, they are very much limited by his uh, life life longevity at this point. The next ruler definitely uh, will attempt to reset the relationship with the West precisely as Max, you pointed out, because there won't be as much at stake in this war for that new ruler. And also historically, that was the case uh, when one particular ruler gets Russia into big trouble, starts a disastrous war. Uh, usually the next one actually attempts some sort of reset with the West. But um, I'm a little bit concerned about the implications. We already seen something like that happening, right? In late 80s, early 1990s. Uh, Michael actually pointed that out. And how far uh, did this get us? I don't think that Russia, as long as it survives, uh, you know, institutionally in its current shape and form, has the opportunity to suddenly transform into, again, this normal country. I have no doubt that's what the West would love to see, and there will be a huge sigh of relief uh, once uh, Putin goes. But the problem remains within Russia, and this desperate, like, this desire not to see this problem, I think, that might have created suboptimal Western foreign policy towards Russia in the past years, right? It really had to invade Ukraine so that to be understood as a threat, a challenge to the international environment. This is unlikely to change even if Putin is gone and some say, say well-meaning Medvedev occupies uh, his place <laughs> instead. This is a broader issue with Russia's role in the international system, with its seat in the UN Council, with its nuclear weapons, right, that should be rethought. And this is it's a very serious and difficult problem to manage, especially with China's existence also. China, of course, would like to maintain Russia's presence in those institutions. But the problem is it goes deeper. I would love to avoid another 1990, which would, again, temporarily improve the relationship between Russia and the West, only to see it go downhill with a new ruler, who essentially gets, uh, again, personalistic all over again, and the whole vicious circle restarts because it's not the first time this happened in Russian history. So I would, I think we have time right now to consider this bigger question as to what sort of role Russia will have in the international system when and if a new well-meaning Russian ruler wants to renegotiate with the West. There will have to be really serious strings attached for that to happen, in my opinion. No, I think it's 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 a great point. And maybe just to close, I think there's oftentimes right now a concern that if something were to happen, if Putin were to go, if the Kremlin, the regime were to collapse, I think there's a lot of concern amongst many analysts in the West that whatever replaces Putin or whatever comes next would be worse. And I think part of what I'm trying to point out here is I think it's pretty hard to get a bit worse. The bar is pretty high. And I think I think we sh we need to be open up the the possibility for things to get better 
And I love to say that, you know, I work on Europe, so therefore I'm an optimist. Because if you look at, you know, the last hundred years of European history, I mean, things got really bad. And then, you know, today they're, they've they've gotten pretty good, at least at least in, in Western Europe, in the European Union, in the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the incorporation of Eastern Europe. So things can change sometimes rapidly. And as, as, in, the, as in the literal pursuit of, of, of Russian roulette, you know, in a gun with six chambers, only one of them has a bullet. So <laughs> five of the chambers don't have bullets. So you sort of hope, hope for that sort of out. Yeah. Well, on, on that note, thank you all for listening to another episode of Russian Roulette. We really appreciate any comments or feedback. Please rate and review the podcast. And we will see you next time on Russian Roulette. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.